am great. <laughs> so good right now. So the week started off, it's actually Tuesday, recording on a Tuesday, and the week has started off really well because on Sunday, Anna and I got brunch. We did, with our friend Sammy, who, if you listen to some of our first episodes, you would know. Yes. It was so nice. And so was... both Anna and I are fully vaccinated, and we haven't really yeah. adventured so out. Sammy. Yep, Sammy is too, and we decided to go do this um, venturing out and had a nice outdoor brunch, and we know we paid a 500% markup on eggs and coffee, but it was still a blast. (laughs) It was so fun. I wake up at 9 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, which to me is early for a Sunday. Like, I would call that, like, early. And I have these text messages that's, like, that's to, like, the group message with the three of us, and Hannah's like, it's the last minute, but do you guys want to get brunch? So he was like, yeah, I want to get brunch. And I wake up like so panicked that I had missed it. I was like, why are you guys up so early? <laughs> like, the brunch happened. Henna I already sent this message. <laughs> I was so worried because Hannah sent the message at like 730 in the morning. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like the sun was up and it came through my blinds and I was just wide awake and I was like you know what I could really go for some brunch with Anna and Sammy right now and oh man you have no idea how much I was crossing my fingers that both of you were going to be available oh my god it was so Um, great when I woke up and came down from the panic that I had missed brunch I was like oh my god of course I want to go to brunch uh, what a lovely way to start the Sunday morning it was so nice it was a beautiful day I'm good. So I'm excited and nervous because I've told Hannah this. I'm trying to get her to do it with me. I want to do a triathlon. Um, and I can bike Woo. and I can run. Woo. But I, I've never tried to competitively swim. Like, I can swim. Like, I get in the pool and I swim to the other side and then I swim back and then I get out of the pool and read. But I've never, like, competitively swam. So I found a woman who, like, coaches people for triathlons and i have my first swim lesson on friday oh that's so. awesome i'm excited i'm nervous i had to buy a I'm swim so cap and goggles i'm excited i'm excited i'm nervous i've always like the reason i've never done a triathlon is because i've been scared of the swim so i don't know we're gonna give it a go oh completely i feel the same way i've done a duathlon and open water swimming freaks me out and it's because like I know how to swim. I just haven't swam in years. And I'm pretty sure if I were to go do a lap in a pool, I would come out all shaky. And um, <laughs> yeah. It's like really hard. Out of shape, shaky. <laughs> it's so hard. And I also have never had anybody like critique my form of swimming. So I'm sure I'm not doing it the most efficiently. I've only been critiqued in my form, like in middle school, you know, when you go through some lessons. But not since then, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. Not since, yeah, summer camp swim lessons. Exactly. But yeah, Anna, I would yeah. love to be a training buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you, we could go on runs and bikes together. That'd be awesome. All right. Do you want to introduce today's topic? Because it was your idea. Sure, I'd love to. All right, so today we're talking about electrodynamic tethers. Yeah, I'm just really excited to talk about this. I came across it while I was just on the internet looking at some other aerospace article that I found interesting. And then for some reason, EDT or electrodynamic tethers came up and I was like, oh, what is this? And I clicked on it and then I was like, hey, this seems really interesting. I sent it over to Anna 
And both of us were comparing notes right before this call, and we both agreed that wow, there was a lot to learn for uh, to learn from for both of us. Yeah, normally she said like we'll have a topic, and I'll know at least enough to have like a passing knowledge of it. I had no idea. I was like, okay, uh, starting from zero. <laughs> so it was really yeah. a good one. All right. Uh, but before we get into it, should we introduce ourselves? All right. I'm Anna. And I'm Hannah. And this is But, but it, it Is, is Rocket, Rocket Science. Science. All right, Hannah, please explain to me how an electrodynamic tether works, because I am confused. Let's dive in. All right, so an electrodynamic tether, or EDT, is essentially a long wire connecting two spacecraft, and this wire can be anywhere from a few meters to 100 kilometers long, and it can be used as a propulsive device. The first time you hear electrodynamic tether, and this is what I thought also, you may think that this is just like a motorized tether, like the tether on a tether ball, or uh, the like paddle ping pong, you know, the paddle board with a little rubber ball at the end with a string. <laughs> and you might be thinking, oh, it's just a tether. <laughs> yeah, what's How that can called? It... I have no idea what the formal name is for that, <laughs> for that paddle. I don't know. Um, I don't either, but I get what you mean. It's just a ping pong paddle. Oh, paddle yeah, ball like, is what is what the Rhode Island novelty shop on Amazon is calling it. <laughs> it's where you just have like a ping pong paddle with a piece of elastic connecting it to the ball. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for looking that up. So we were close enough. Um, yeah, I got what you meant. Yeah. So... So when you hear tether, you think like, okay, so in space, maybe there's a motor attached to tether and it unwinds it and um, it'll just contract and expand based off of how you uh, power the motor. Or, you know, you'll think about an astronaut tether to the ISS. But the key word in this term is electrodynamic. So it is wildly different than your everyday perception of tether. So the tether itself is conductive. You have a current running down the length of the wire connecting the two spacecraft. This current is generated by a plasma collector that ejects electrons down the length of the wire. So let me repeat myself. You have a wire connecting two spacecraft. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to need that again. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. I had to read this a couple times over. You have a wire. This is your tether. It's connecting two spacecraft. On one end is a plasma collector. This plasma collector will collect electrons from the Earth's ambient ionospheric plasma. So the Earth has an ionosphere, and in this ionosphere, there is ionospheric plasma. And what we can do is we can harness that, we can collect electrons, and then eject those electrons down the wire inside the wire so we can collect and eject them down the wire so when you have electrons moving down a wire you have current so current flowing down the wire means you have a magnetic field around the wire 
This is an elementary principle we learned all the way back in Physics 101. So let me explain that. Whenever you have a current flowing down a wire, you will get a magnetic field. And a way to think about this is, in physics, we always learn about the right-hand rule um, in electromagnetic physics. So take your right hand and give someone a thumbs up. Please don't do this while you're driving. <laughs> uh, just think about the thumbs up. And let's say that the direction of your thumb, uh, the direction that your thumb is pointing is the direction of the current uh, in the wire. So let's say the current is going up. And your fingers curving around the wire is the direction of the magnetic field. So the magnetic field curves around the wire. This is the right hand rule, and you can always use this. Whenever you are looking at a wire and you know that there's a current flowing down it anywhere in your electronics, um, you will, once you put your thumb out in the direction of the current and you curve your fingers, that curvature will explain to you the magnetic field um, around that wire. Nice. So flowing current will induce a magnetic field. Something else to mention here is that the Earth also has a magnetic field. Magnetic field lines radiate between the Earth's north and south poles. So That's why a compass works. Like if you have a compass, it'll point true north because of the magnetic field. Exactly. Earth has an iron core and it's part liquid and part solid. Uh, when that liquid outer core, when there's movement in it, it produces Earth's magnetic field. And like every magnet, Earth's magnetic field has a north pole and a south pole and a compass is just a small magnet so it has a magnetized needle so the southern pole of the needle will attract to show you the direction to earth's north pole all right so edts can act as thrusters because the magnetic field exerts a force on the current carrying wire there is a fundamental equation of electromagnetic physics and this is this equation explains the Lorentz effect. So the Lorentz effect states that F, which is a force, is equal to I cross B. I is the current through the wire and B is the magnetic field. So F equals I cross B. This is huge. When you have a current and a magnetic field, you get a force. The direction of the current and how the tether interacts with the Earth's magnetic field determines whether or not the tether will create a thrust force or a drag force. So this is actually very complicated to explain in over a podcast. You really need drawings and uh, vector mathematics to truly understand how, like what direction the current is flowing in, how you're oriented with respect to the Earth's magnetic field how all of that will interact together to then produce either a thrust or a drag. And I'm not going so, to try to create this frame of reference in your mind. It would get too complicated. So I'm trying to provide a general uh, description right now. Okay. But the main takeaway from what you just said is that if you have current and you have a magnetic field, you can get a force. Exactly. So in order to move anything in space, you need a force. A rocket thrust is a force. So if you can get a tether oriented correctly with respect to Earth's magnetic field, and you can pump a bunch of current through it with using the electrons from the ionosphere, you can produce thrust. This is absolutely amazing because you will get a propellantless system to move spacecraft. Isn't that wild? 
That's crazy. It makes me think of a solar sail. Yes. Actually, that's a really good example, Anna. Um, you can use electrodynamic tethers to deorbit spacecraft or to boost and adjust orbit of spacecraft. I read a few papers from NASA that discusses using an EDT to maintain orbit of the ISS and save costs from doing chemical propellant-based ba- boosts. So like Anna and I have said That's in almost... Cool. Yeah, isn't it cool? Because Anna and I have said this countless times, almost in every episode, that carrying propellant is expensive. So when you don't have to carry it for small maneuvers, it's a huge win. Yeah, because if you're carrying propellant, you're carrying more mass. And any amount of mass you bring to space is going to cost you money. Right, because you need to actually have more fuel to lift that mass off of the ground. Yeah, exactly. And you just end up in this circle. In one of the research papers I read, I'll have the research paper in the sources. In this paper, I read that systems engineers usually allocate 10 to 20% of total mass to be disposed of for chemical thrusters. So 10 to 20% of the total mass you're going to be disposing of is uh, allocated to chemical thrusters. That's a huge portion of your overall mass that you're going to dispose. An electrodynamic tether, which weighs about 30 to 50 kilograms, can provide deorbit capabilities, but it only takes up a few percent of the total mass of the carrier vehicle at launch. So this is a huge improvement. Another issue with chemical thrusters for deorbiting is that your spacecraft will need to reliably operate and carry chemical thrusters for a longer period of time. Meanwhile, an EDT is a dormant system that will only be activated during end of life or whenever you need an orbit boost. However, you unfortunately can't replace all propulsion systems with an electrodynamic tether because EDTs can generate an average thrust of 0.5 to 0.8 newtons for 5 to 10 kilowatts of electrical power. So they are a great option if you want to maneuver something or need to move slowly over a small period of time. So for reference, so like Anna brought up solar sails, awesome option, um, but again, they're not chemical propulsion, they don't produce a lot of thrust. But like solar sails, the example I also bring up in my notes is ion thrusters are also another great alternative to chemical propulsion. You know, it's another great alternative to the traditional high thrust RP-1 engines. Ion thrusters will produce, you know, 15 to 100 uh, millinewtons of thrust for 1 to 15 kilowatts of power. It's pretty comparable to uh, EDTs. And we discuss electric propulsion and ion thrusters in episode 6, so go check it out if you want to learn more about that. But overall... So from an ion thruster, you could get... Oh, sorry, I'm just trying to... So from an iron thruster, you can get 1 to 15 kilowatts of power. From an EDT, you can get 5 to 10 kilowatts. So yeah, those seem pretty much in the ballpark of each other. Yep, that's right, Anna. So EDTs are a great option for maneuvering systems and for simple boosts for satellites. But EDTs will not launch you off of Earth's surface. (laughs) A reminder. That's a bummer. (laughs) Right? Just a reminder for all of our listeners... The space shuttle had two solid rocket boosters that produced 28 mega newtons, or about 6.6 million pounds force of thrust in total to get the space shuttle off of Earth's surface. So let me just say those numbers again. 28 mega newtons compared to the 0.5 newtons for an EDT. You you can't. It's just, you need chemical propulsion for certain things. Yeah. But yeah, Anna, that's all I have for an introduction to EDTs. 
That's awesome. Do you want to take a quick break and I'll jump into the history? Yeah, let's do it. All right, we're back. Welcome back, everybody. It was a really eventful break. (laughs) It was. It was like five minutes. I called my mom. (laughs) Yeah, I just hung out on my phone. I watched a video that my sister sent me. Oh, nice. What'd she send you? She sent me a music video for Jalebi Baby. It's a pretty popular song right now. Oh, I know that song. Yeah, and it's like a... What's the thing when two artists... It's a collab. Collab between... Collab. <laughs> We're always collaborating. It was a collaboration between Tesher and Jason Derulo, and she really wanted me to watch it, and it was pretty fun. Ooh. It fit perfectly in our five-minute break. (laughs) Anna, I'm so excited to hear about the history of EDTs. All right. Okay. So normally, I go to Wikipedia and I type in electrodynamic tether, and, like, the Wikipedia article has a brief history section, and I can use that to kind of figure, like, get to better, more reliable, or even just more in-depth sources on the topic. Right. Yeah, this no history section. I typed in the history of electrodynamic tethers on Google and Google Scholar. I got a really intense paper all about the history of space tethers, period. And that actually did have some good information in it, but it was also incredibly overwhelming. This one was kind of an adventure, but I think I got some interesting stuff. Yeah, Anna, I understand the journey with this <laughs> specific topic. I totally understand. As I was doing my own research, I was either getting super technical papers or oversimplified videos. Yeah, I was just getting nothing. They were like, there was the beginning of the world, and then there was nothing, and then there was electrodynamic tethers. And I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> something had to have happened between A and B here. All right. So I'm going to start off with a very brief history of just tethers in space, period. It, everything somehow comes back to Sokovsky. The man. The myth. The legend. <laughs> so true. I thought I was funny. He was most famous for developing the ideal rocket equation, and that is the formula that accounts for change in a rocket's velocity, or a delta V, as its mass continues to reduce while using fuel during flight. Uh, we actually have an episode all about Sokovsky, and it is episode 10, if you want to learn more about him, or in the rocket equation. In 1895, Sokovsky wrote a series of essays called Dreams of Earth and Sky. I don't know why, this always just sounded to me like a Philip K. Dick science fiction novel. <sighs> I I don't know. (laughs) That's just what that name reminds me of. Yeah, I can see that. Right? The androids dream of electric sheep. Like, it's got a similar feel. In these essays, he mentions what historians believe to be the earliest mention of a space elevator or a space tether. So now we're going to jump all the way to EDTs, or electrodynamic tethers. (laughs) From what I could find, the concept for an EDT was first thought up by radio physicist Dr. Mario Grossi. Grossi first became interested in the idea of a space tether when he heard about an idea for a skyhook suggested by four American scientists in 1966. All right, I had to do a little bit of my own investigation work, but I am pretty confident that the paper this is referring to was Satellite Elongation into a True Skyhook by John D. Isaacs, Alan C. Vine, Hugh Bradner, and Georgie Box. It was published in volume 151 of the journal Science which was published on February 11th, 1966. Now, in this article, Isaac and company essentially go on to describe the concept for a space elevator. Really brief summary here. 
there would be a tether anchored to the Earth's surface, extending straight up past the Earth's atmosphere into space. It would then connect to a counterweight in space. This could possibly be a space station of some sort. And then this system could be used to launch objects into space with much less energy than a traditional launch from Earth's surface. Now, I'm not going to go more into this here because we actually, guess what? We have an episode on it. Episode 5, all about the space elevator and the feasibility of it. We had a lot of fun with that one, so I would highly recommend you check it out. Yeah, it was an awesome one. So then Grossi took this idea and simplified it suggesting that the crew of a manned spacecraft could throw a very long, thin wire into space. The article I read referred to this as fly fishing the cosmic pond. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) I read it and I was like, oh, Hannah would really like that. Honestly, I just love the word cosmic. (laughs) (laughs) The goal of this would be that this wire could then serve as an antenna for a low-frequency radio or be used as a device to measure charged particles in space. That's fascinating. The concept of using the wire as just a long antenna and building off of this tether concept, but then taking it a step further for multiple applications. Yeah, it never even occurred to me the idea of using it for radio. Right? So then in 1974, one of Grossi's colleagues at the University of Padua in Italy, Professor Giuseppe Colombo, became interested in Grossi's idea. And does Giuseppe Colombo sound familiar to you? He is commonly referred to as the grandfather of the flyby. And the ESA mission, the European Space Agency mission, to Mercury, Bepi Colombo, which launched on October 20th, 2018, is named in his honor. And guess what? If you want to learn more about gravitational slingshot maneuvers, we did that too. It's episode 19. Woo! We're getting a whole little encyclopedia here, Hannah. I love it. It's wild still. It blows my mind how many of them we've done. Yes, exactly what I was thinking. Colombo proposed the possibility of attaching a small satellite to the other end of the tether. And together, Grossi and Colombo tested the idea through various laboratory experiments, which led them to develop an experiment they believed could be completed using the space shuttle. And then this led to Tethered Satellite System 1, or TSS-1. This was a joint mission between NASA and the Italian space agency ASI. The mission consisted of a satellite connected to the space shuttle with a conducting tether. And the mission had four main goals. One, verify that a tethered satellite system would work. Two, figure out what impacts ambient space plasma would have on the tether and the system as a whole. Three, understand the dynamic forces acting on the tether. And four, learn more about the capability of the space tether and its applications for further missions. TSS-1 was flown on STS-46 from July 31st to August 8th, 1992. I want to make a quick note. The NASA website had the launch date as 6-26-1992, but I think that's incorrect because it wouldn't match with the shuttle mission it was supposedly on. So I think July 31st makes more sense. But either way, the plan for TSS-1 was to deploy a satellite 12.5 miles or 20 kilometers above the shuttle orbiter, meaning The tether was going to be 12.5 miles long. That's wild. 12.5 miles. I know. For a first try, they were like, let's go big. Wow. The satellite would be attached to the orbiter via a tether located in the Payload Operations Control Center, or POCC. The tether system was essentially a fancy fishing rod. (laughs) It consisted of a reel that would reel the tether in and out. 
Then there was a boom for the initial deployment and retrieval of the satellite. So essentially they had a little thing to like push it out there and grab it when they needed to get it back. There was also a lot of other equipment to distribute power and manage communications and data collection, as well as separate structures that carried scientific instrumentation. But the satellite itself was a sphere with a diameter of 1.6 meters or 5.2 feet, and it had a nitrogen thruster for attitude control, essentially just to keep it bolstered in more or less in the location they wanted it in. Now, the tether itself was only 2.54 millimeters thick, or 0.1 inches. I was like sitting, taking these notes, racking my brain about what a good comparison would be. The best thing I could come up with is the cord of a phone charger. So I googled it. The average iPhone charger cord is 3.2 millimeters in diameter. So then now imagine it being 12 miles long. In space. In space. Like, that's insane. That's crazy. Yeah, this blew my mind. All right, Anna, so like, let's think about this in terms of football fields, because everyone loves putting large dimensions <laughs> in terms of football fields. <laughs> As someone who doesn't watch football, I still think this is a good idea. Right? <laughs> it's just a good way to get a visual. Same, I do not watch football. <laughs> Hope I don't offend anyone. In 12 miles, there are about 176 football fields. That's crazy. That's a lot of football fields. That's a lot of football fields. Now imagine your phone cord stretching that far. Oh my gosh. Like there's a lot happening there. Imagine how tough it has to be if like some debris collides with it in space. For it being so long, there's got to be a good probability of that happening. I didn't even think of that, but that's a good point. I was more just like getting that thing under control. Like if you lost control of it, getting it back under control, I would imagine would be almost impossible. Oh my gosh. Such a good point. It's a lot. So the tether was made out of Kevlar and Nomex, and then it was also made of 10 strands of 34 AWG copper wire, and it was all covered with a Teflon sheath. Unfortunately for TSS-1, they were not able to deploy the tether the entire length. It deployed to 78 meters, or 256 feet, where it then got stuck. The issue was actually resolved, and it was deployed to 256 meters, or 840 feet, before it got stuck again and this time permanently. However, they were able to reel it back in, and the issue was determined to be a bolt that was protruding out from the deployment mechanism. Oh, that's a huge bummer. I know, it was really sad. But despite the mission's issues, they were able to get some useful data from it. And this was not the end of TSS-1. Four years later, in February of 1996, TSS-1R was released from the Space Shuttle Columbia on STS-75. Something I want to note here, I'm sure as many of you know, the Columbia disaster. That was the disaster of the space shuttle Columbia. Columbia was not the name of the mission. So that shuttle had flown before the disaster. So when we mentioned the space shuttle Columbia, we are talking about the name of that physical vehicle, not necessarily the Columbia disaster. Exactly. The disaster is its own STS number. Yes, exactly. From what I could find, the satellite and tether were exactly the same as TSS-1. I also couldn't find what the R stands for. My guess was redo, like TSS-1 redo. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't find it. I don't know. That's a great guess. That was the best thing I could think of. And honestly, it's probably plausible they would have been like, R, redo? Like, I don't think that's even <laughs> all that far-fetched as somebody's idea. Oh 
man. I've never heard redo in a scientific name, but that would be pretty awesome if you were right. I have no idea. If somebody knows, I'd love to know. I tried to Google it. Couldn't find anything. <laughs> so the objectives of TSS-1R were the same as TSS-1, with the main goal to deploy the tether to its full length. And this time they got really close. It took over five hours, because I would imagine they'd have to go really slowly. But the tether was deployed to 19.7 kilometers, or 12.2 miles, when it suddenly snapped. No. I know. It was so sad. (laughs) It was so sad. So as a reminder, the full length was 12.5 miles. So they were 0.3 miles from the full length. Oh, my gosh. I know. I was so sad when I was reading this. The break was later determined to be due to an electrical discharge through a spot on the tether where the insulation had broken. And I could completely see this as plausible, right? Like, you have this 12.5-mile tether that's probably being bent around. They were still able to gather a lot of useful information from this mission. And one of the biggest discoveries was that the measured electrical current levels on the tether were way higher than predicted. And it was determined that the impacts the shuttle had on current collection and the surrounding plasma are more intense than initially thought. What does that mean? Like, what kind of impacts? I'm imagining there was a larger effect in the plasma and the electrons going through the tether from the shuttle than they initially anticipated, because this tether was attached to the shuttle at one end. Interesting. Yeah, it was really cool, but they did figure out that their initial predictions for how the space shuttle would affect the tether were incorrect. After this, a TSS-2 mission was proposed, but it was never flown. Now, something I want to note, Giuseppe Colombo died in 1984 at the age of 63, so he never got to see TSS-1 or TSS-1R fly. Aww. I know. That's sad. I know. Another thing, Mario Grossi died at the age of 74 in 1999. And then actually most of the information I got about the origination of the TSS mission came from his obituary in The Guardian. And it was a really interesting read. I linked it in the sources. I also put an obituary for Giuseppe Colombo in there, too, just because it's another interesting read. Anna, you did some real digging. Oh, my God. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) I could not find anything. And then I found this man's obituary. And I was like, why does this have the best information? Research from an obituary. That's a first. (laughs) I've never heard that one before. But very cool and sad at the same time. (laughs) I know. I felt really bad. But The Guardian did a really lovely write-up about him. So I would recommend. But the final, and I think most recent space tether mission to be flown, specifically involving an EDT, is something called MITE, or the Miniature Tether Electrodynamics Experiment. And it is actually a set of two CubeSat experiments run by students at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, and it is overseen by Professor Brian Gilchrist. The goal of MITE, I'm like, is it mighty? Is that how they want you to say it? Could be. I'm going to call it Mighty. Go for it. In my head, I've been doing M-I-T-E-E. I have too. It didn't occur to me until I just said it out loud that it might be Mighty. I also think that's cuter. Yeah, that does sound cool. The goal of the Mighty mission is to gain better insight into dynamics of EDTs, both how they move one in space and how currents flow through the tether. The first of the two, Mighty 1, was flown in January of 2021 on Virgin Orbit's first Launcher 1 test. That's cool for a couple different reasons. Especially because Richard Branson just went to space on Sunday. Woo, that is right. Yeah, shout out to Virgin Galactic and the entire team for that big success. That was really awesome to watch. 
All right, back to Mighty. Mighty One consisted of a 3U cube satellite, or three units. So essentially, a CubeSat are these little 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter cubes. And so that would make up a unit. So a 3U would be three of these units, making the final dimensions 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 30 centimeters. Kind of ends up having the form factor of a loaf of bread. That's a great visual. (laughs) Yes, that is right. (laughs) This 3U satellite then deployed a smaller 8 centimeter by 8 centimeter by 2 centimeter satellite. And then fortunately, the University of Michigan, the website actually had this. They were like, it's about the size of a smartphone. I was like, oh, thank you. That way I don't have to sit here and try to figure out things to reference that to. (laughs) And so you have this little smartphone that's tethered to this loaf of bread with a one meter long tether, I think. I couldn't find definitively that this tether is a meter long, but I believe it is. The goal of this was to take current and voltage measurements of the system. I did not find anything about whether this was successful or not. I couldn't find anything about the results they got. The only papers I could find were from 2014 or 2015, which, if they flew in 2021, would not contain any results of the experiment. I'm pretty sure it flew, but I don't know if the test was successful or not. But I'd be really curious to know what information they got. Yeah. If anybody out there knows, let us know. Point us in the direction of where we can find it, because I'd be really interested. If one of the Mighty team members is out there listening... Please, we'd love to find out what's going on here. Yeah, and do you call it Mighty or is it M-I-T-E-E? Because I would really like to know. (laughs) However, there are a bunch of other space missions that have flown over the years. A lot of them are not actually EDTs. There are different kinds of space tether. But if you're interested, go check it out. They're really cool. Anna, that was fascinating. What a really cool history and really awesome digging into all sorts of different types of articles. Thanks. I was really proud of myself. I'm impressed. I started this one out and I was like, I was like 20 minutes in and I almost texted you. I was like, nothing is out there. Put my internet sleuthing skills to the test. That's right. All right, Anna, do you want to tell everyone where they can find us? Yeah, can do. First off, we have merch. So if you want to buy some stuff with the But It Is Rocket Science logo, you can head to our website, butitisrocketscience.com and then hit the button that says shop. That website also has an About Us page if you want to learn about more about us, and it has a Contact Us form. If you want to shoot us a message, ask us any questions, have ideas for future episodes, if you have a recommendation for a triathlon bike because I'm really overwhelmed, <laughs> check out our website. We also have our Instagram, but it is Rocket Science. And then we have our Twitter, but it is RS. And then we also have a Facebook page, but it is Rocket Science. And then if you've been enjoying this, if you like the podcast in general, Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot to us and it really helps us out. Should I go into my sources? Yeah, Hannah, bring it on. Lots of digging around in some research papers for this one. I referenced Wikipedia for space shuttle solid rocket boosters. I looked up a NASA research paper titled International Space Station Electrodynamic Tether Reboost Study. I referenced our own episode six electric propulsion podcast notes I also referenced another paper called A Brief Overview of Electrodynamic Tethers. I also referenced the Wikipedia page for electrodynamic tethers. I referenced a NASA YouTube video about EDTs. And I referenced another paper in Acta Astronautica titled Benefits and Risks of Using Electrodynamic Tethers to Deorbit Spacecraft. All right, Anna, how about you? 
All right, so I've got a paper I found on the history of the tether concept and tether missions, a review. It was an interesting article. It was definitely a read, though. And then I have a NASA article all about TSS-1, a Wikipedia article all about TSS-1, that obituary I was mentioning earlier in The Guardian from Mario Grossi. The article I also mentioned from the journal Science by Isaacs that talks about one of the initial concepts for the skyhook. A Wikipedia article about Giuseppe Colombo. A obituary for Professor Giuseppe Colombo. A Wikipedia page all about just all of the space tether missions and proposed and future missions. The website from the University of Michigan all about Mighty. And then a NASA page talking about CubeSats. And that's all I got. Awesome. Do you want to lead us in closing it out? Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I believe in you. Thanks, Anna. You're the best cheerleader (laughs) I could ever ask for in my life. (laughs) So are you. All right. Until next time, space cadets. T-minus three, two, one, liftoff! liftoff.